we pray. Amen. Well, there are times when lacking knowledge can really lead to offence. When we don't know a person well, we can even hurt or offend someone without, without knowing. There was a time when I and a group of friends went for lunch in Marrickville after a day of a conference, and we had a group of 10 people, but we hadn't planned anything. It was just spontaneous. And so a couple of us poked our head in the door of a, a Greek restaurant that looked open and asked if we could have a table for our group. And the head waiter did not seem thrilled about our request. Uh, we kind of awkwardly waited in the entryway while he had to shuffle together quite a few tables together. And every time I made eye contact with him, uh, tried to look appreciative, he just seemed to be giving me these death stares. And he was a big guy, a lot bigger than me, uh, dark features, and I began to feel quite intimidated. Um, And as we sat down enjoying this delicious Greek food, every time I looked up and made eye contact with him, there was still those same, this same cold look. He was not happy with me as far as I could tell. And, and if not for the group of friends I was there with, I would have been quite frightened after that lunch. I seem to have done something to offend the waiter. I, I think he might have found it quite rude that I was hanging around in the entryway and suddenly demanding or asking for a big table. I'm, I'm not sure. But offending a waiter by accident is, is one thing. But lacking knowledge and and offending or hurting someone that we really should know quite well, someone we have a relationship with, that's quite significant. It's a much bigger deal when we ought to know this about this person and and we fail to love them and instead we hurt them. I I should know that my wife would rather me spend quality time with her than do house jobs. I, I should know that some of my friends really appreciate physical contact, but others, uh, that's a, they're not interested in a hug. Perhaps there are things we should know about each other, but sadly we forget. Good relationships, they rely on knowledge of one another and, and seeking to grow that knowledge. And it's not just knowing facts about someone, but knowing someone personally. To say, I know about King Charles is very different to saying, I know King Charles. So when we might say, I know God, well, how well do you know God? We find in our next installment of Hosea today that one of the root causes behind this relationship breakdown that Israel has with their God is a lack of knowledge a lack of personal knowledge of him. Israel should know that the Lord is God and there is no other. And yet, where do they turn? They turn to the Baals and other idols. As we heard last week, that that relationship is paralleled in Hosea with this live illustration of Hosea marrying a promiscuous woman and continuing to love her through her unfaithfulness. Well, today there's a slight shift in this book, the same themes, but rather than this illustration, we kind of have a a courtroom type of scene. The Lord giving a charge against his people Israel, laying out accusations. So there's 
he highlights the fruit and the root and the fruit of sin in chapter 4 uh, you might see this on your outline and then secondly in chapter 5 he pronounces that judgment is coming and thirdly he hosea exhorts the people to repent to come to god for revival well come with me to verse 1 of chapter 4 for what sounds like a course court summons. Keep, keep your Bibles open to Hosea chapter 4, 5, 6 if you've got them there. Chapter 4 verse 1, hear the word of the Lord you Israelites because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. These three things, no faithfulness, no love, no knowledge, they are the roots of this relationship breakdown. And it, and it seems that knowledge is quite a big one as we read through the passage. These three terms, they're relational. And, and you can imagine a conversation of a marriage in tr- about a marriage in trouble revolving around one or more of these. For, for example, he hasn't been faithful to me. Or she doesn't really love me. Or he doesn't know me at all. No faithfulness, no love, no knowledge. This marriage between God and his people, it's reached a breakdown point. And this seems to be the root of sin. Sin, that the plant that is thorny and bears poisonous fruit, it comes out of this lack of relationship. And what's more, it leads to other brokenness. A broken society, a broken land, as we look in the next couple of verses. Have a look in verse 2. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. It's this really desolate picture of the consequences or the, or the overflow of when God's relationship with his people when they have turned away from him once they've broken the first couple of the 10 commandments you know love the god and serve love god and serve him only he is the only god and and don't worship idols once those two are broken sure to follow seem to be these other ones from the 10 commandments lying murder adultery so there's there's this broken society as well as this land that is mourning when it says the land dries up, it, it's literally saying the land mourns. It's like the, the land is crying from the situation of the spiritual adultery. So verse 1 to 3 seem to be this snapshot of the root and the fruit of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And the rest of chapter 4 seems to unpack it a bit more. So firstly, in verses 4 to 9... It describes the way the priests, the spiritual leaders, have failed their duty and it flows down. They've not preserved or proclaimed the knowledge of God, but they've rather, they've rejected it and ignored it. Have a look at verse 6. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. There's this lack of knowledge in the priest, imagine a waterfall, and there's contaminant. There's some sort of poison right up the top, and it just trickles down, and all the plants 
are destroyed and killed. When there's problems in the leadership of the people, it flows down to the rest. Have a look at verse 7 as well. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. These people who are supposed to be spiritual leaders pointing them towards faithfulness to God. Instead, they're having a negative effect. And they lead the way in what seems to be humanity's fundamental problem. They exchange their glorious God for something disgraceful. We heard this earlier in the year in Romans chapter 1 as well. People exchanging the the beautiful glory of God for man-made idols. This glorious thing saying, no thanks, we don't want that. Instead, something from the earth, something created instead of worshipping the Creator. So we've got this picture of this contaminated waterfall where the the poison from the top trickles down and, and God says, all of you are at fault. Verse 9, like people, like priests, and God will punish them both. This is a cautionary tale for us today. The church needs leaders who have a deep personal knowledge and relationship with God and teach that to others, not merely knowing about God like we might know about King Charles. So, DPC, pray for your elders, your pastors. Seek this personal knowledge yourselves that we might be a people who have and proclaim this personal knowledge of God. And I think this is a great strength of DPC. So let's, let's foster that appetite, that hunger for God's Word and to know Him deeply. So... In verses 4 to 9, the rejection of the knowledge of God seems to be the root at the root of sin. And and in the next few verses of chapter 4, the the fruits, what it looks like, are fleshed out. Verse 12 gives a picture of some of their idolatry. And, And the ESV actually translates it more literally. The ESV says, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. They're treating these mundane, everyday objects as if they have spiritual power. It's pure folly. But the verses get darker with the picture of immorality. Continuing in verse 12, a spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills. And then a bit further down, therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. There's this spirit of prostitution among the people of Israel at this time. There's something alluring and attractive about it to them. They sacrifice on the mountaintops under shady trees and it's all twisted together with this cult shrine prostitution. It's really ugly and messy. Israel worships other God, committing spiritual adultery. But then there's the literal stuff as well. What they're doing is shameful. But they don't realize or don't care and they just continue on. Have a look at verse 17, a bit further down. 
Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue in their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. Well, Ephraim is another name for Israel. It was the, the largest tribe in the northern kingdom. But yet, even when they've run out of alcohol, they're not influenced by that anymore. They're sobered up. They still continue in this horrible revelry. They still engage in this spiritual adultery. And there's, there's more wordplay about this in verse 19. A whirlwind will sweep them away and their sacrifices will bring them shame. The word for wind is the same as the word for spirit. So the spirit, this seductive, alluring spirit, actually turns into a tornado that sweeps them away in judgment. I don't know about you, but I find this description quite confronting and, and graphic, speaking about the behavior of Israel. It's quite sickening. And it seems to be deliberately so, to, to make us horrified, to make us ashamed about the nature of sin. Like those pictures that used to be, or still are possibly, on the pictures, on, on boxes of cigarettes. You know, the, the picture of a foot with gangrene. It's this graphic, shocking thing to alert people of how bad this thing is, of how dangerous it is. I think this passage is a bit like that, this graphic shock. It's a picture of the horror and the danger of sin. It shows the horror of the way Israel have treated God. God, the, the patient and generous provider, the husband of Israel. But he is rightly jealous for his people and will not tolerate spiritual adultery. Idolatry is like adultery. You know, we might not have the same idols today that they did in those days, but we definitely have idols tugging at our hearts. So perhaps a question to ask is, when you've had a hard week, where do you turn to for comfort? Or what do you long for as relief? Maybe you think, at least, oh, tomorrow I can just do some shopping and spend some money and that'll make me feel better. There's something I've been looking at buying all week. Or maybe I long for, I'm just, I look forward to, I can't wait, I'll be so happy when the kids finally go to school or when they get out of school. I can't, I'll only be happy if just my colleagues would respect me for the work I do. Or maybe, if only I could just catch a break from work, get a rest. If only I could pay off the mortgage. If only I had better health. The danger of idolatry is that many good things created by God can become God things. When good things become God things, that's idolatry. So rather than turning to created things, let's turn to the Creator. When we're having that bad week, we think, oh, at least God is my loving Father and I am His child. Or we can look forward to, we can say, I'll be happy when at last I'm united to the Lord Jesus and I see Him face to face. 
my loving husband, and we are his bride. So may our comfort and our longing be wrapped up in him, not in things of this world. Because as, as Albert mentioned earlier, they will let us down. They will, they will turn out empty. So chapter 4 gives this picture of the, the horror of sin. And then chapter 5 warns us how God will respond to it. Have a look at, at verse 1. If verse, chapter 4 was the charge, here's the verdict. Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, royal house. This judgment is against you. All of them, the priests, the Israelites, the royal house, they've all been found guilty as charged. God will discipline them for their slaughter, for their idolatry, for their prostitution, for their corruption. And look at verse 3. God knows about all of it. I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Nothing is hidden from God's sight, even the most inner thoughts. And so as a result, in judgment, God withdraws himself from them in verse 6. And it, it actually makes the situation feel a bit hopeless. Listen to this. When they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, they will not find him, for he has withdrawn himself, withdrawn himself from them. They are unfaithful to the Lord. Though they seek him, they will not find him. It seems that in, in judgment, God has withdrawn his presence from them. But at the same time, their seeking after him is coupled with this unfaithfulness and a lack of genuinely seeking to know God. They bring a sacrifice to him, but it's really just a religious ritual without the heart behind it. This type of worship is, is despicable to God. We see these in Jesus' words to the Pharisees. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We must be on guard against this, this having a Christian facade. I recently learned in the master plan process that's been happening a bit more about facades because uh, these heritage buildings, uh, the facades are quite important to heritage officers. You know, that's where the people from the street see this beautiful, old, majestic building and they think, oh, wow, that's beautiful. It's part of the kind of heritage of this area. But you could go in the door and it's completely different inside. Having a Christian facade is something that God's Word warns us against. If you have this building that looks beautiful on the outside, but inside there's something different. God sees it all. Nothing is hidden from Him. God can see through it, even if people can't. And so God pronounces this verdict on Israel. He can see their hearts. They are guilty as charged. And so he warns them of the coming judgment. Have a look in verse 8. Sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn in Ramah. Raise the battle cry. Ephraim will be laid waste. This judgment is coming because God is, God is punishing their sin. And although it's Assyria who ends up wiping them out, it's not merely a human war, one kingdom against another. 
but God himself is also coming against them. God is actively judging sin. This terrifying reality is is shown in a few different pictures here. Have a look in verse 10b. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. You know, picture a tsunami, not just a a trickle of water or a stream. So much water that terrified people in those days. Or verse 12, I am like a moth, like rot. We might not be very afraid of these things, but for them, that could ruin their entire house. Verse 14, I think, is the most terrifying. I will be like a lion. I will tear. I will carry off. Notice the I, I, I. God himself is the one bringing this against Israel. In his sovereign control, God uses Assyria in judgment of his own people. And at the end, there's no one to rescue. I actually looked up a video of a lion taking down a buffalo. I don't know if you watch uh, David Attenborough safari videos. The animal kingdom is quite fascinating. But as I watched this, this lion that's actually smaller than the buffalo, so powerful. They're terrifyingly powerful predators. There's no hope for that poor buffalo. And this is how God is saying he comes against sin. This fierce judgment because it's such a horrific, horrific thing. But we also see in here God's tough love for his people. He's teaching them to feel the weight of sin. One of my favorite lines in the hymn Amazing Grace is actually, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." When we look at God's judgment against sin, His fierce, lion-like judgment, God may use this to bring us to our conviction of sin. Hosea today teaches us to feel the weight of sin, how ugly it is, how it ruins everything, and how we need to come to God earnestly, not with the facade. Verse 15 says, until they seek my face, until they earnestly seek me. Chapter 5, it's about God bringing judgment against his own people for this horror of sin because of their covenant unfaithfulness. But it ends with this glimmer of hope. And as we turn to chapter 6, we see an exhortation to take hold of that hope. So it's been quite dark for two chapters, hasn't it? But here we see this return to the Lord and this, this opportunity for revival. Have a look. Hosea himself speaks up. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Hosea exhorts his people to respond to the opportunity for hope, to seek God earnestly, trusting in him, not themselves. Because when it comes to the judgment of God, there is nowhere to run and nowhere to hide except to run to Him 
and take shelter in God himself. In these verses, we see that Hosea knows God is a God of restoration. He's not only the jealous God, the judge who brings judgment on evil, but he's the God of restoration. And when I say jealous God, a right jealousy that a husband has for his wife. So Hosea knows it's in his character. He's sure, as surely as the sun rises, he will appear. Hosea knows this about God. But does he? Perhaps he does, but we don't see yet here how that happens. How will he do it? How will God bind us up? How will he restore them after the judgment? Well, 750 years later, we, we find that God did it by becoming a human, by becoming an Israelite, the only Israelite who was ever perfectly faithful, the only Israelite who was able to bear the guilt, the only Israelite who came and lived a perfect life. He, he was raised again on the third day after dying for sins. Listen, listen to these words from 1 Peter about the Lord Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. When we consider the horror of sin that's like adultery, when we consider the fierce judgment of God against that sin, we can then look to Jesus who took it for us. When I'm convicted of sin, sometimes it just can feel like layers of shame, clouds that just seem to block out the light, my, my anger, my lust, my greed. And I can look through and see the shining light of the cross and the empty tomb breaking through that because Jesus took that on the cross. And this is one of the things that we celebrated today in the baptism that the believer is united to Christ in his death and resurrection, that Jesus took my sins and his sins and nailed them to the tree. We were buried with him. We walked out of that tomb with him and we were raised with him. His story becomes our story, the story of judgment and revival. By his wounds we are healed. Well, in earthly marriages, in, in, in marriages in our church, uh, we ran a marriage enrichment seminar earlier this year. There's this desire to invest in this important relationship. And many couples, if not all, often go through a prepare course before they get married to get to know one another, to think about what marriage will look like for them. If we go to these lengths to invest in our earthly marriages, how, how much more ought we invest in our ultimate spiritual marriage to the Lord Jesus? To know Him, to know Him more. Because how do we share in this resurrection life? How are we united to Him? Well, verse 3 says, Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. 
that we may know him personally and be united to him.